I'm Kyle Salmon. And I'm Corey Astle. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast about conservative ideas and thinkers. We explore what it means to call yourself a conservative, where conservatism has been, and where it's going. Each week, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. Join the conversation by liking us on Facebook or following us on Twitter at ConsMinds, at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 101, we continue our Conservative Stories series, interviews with people in the conservative movement. Today, we're pleased to be joined by Rachel Bovard, Policy Director at the Conservative Partnership Institute. Rachel, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. Good to be here. So you're, you've become a conservative icon, at, at the very least, on Twitter. We know Twitter's not real life, but, um, <laughs> but you've become a mini-celebrity since, uh, since we became friends so many years ago. So, Yeah, I'm not sure what it means to be a celebrity on Twitter, but I, I can't think it's that good. So <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm, that's welcome news or not, but thank you. <laughs> it's definitely something. So uh, what we want to do today is just kind of learn a little bit more about you. And, and I do think that our listeners are, are going to be interested in this. Um, we, we started with ourselves and, and, uh, I think, I think it's picking up a little bit of steam. So I'm going to start by asking you what's your day job and how'd you get into it? Yeah, that's a, a, as good a place to start as any. So, you know, as you mentioned, I'm the policy director at the conservative partnership Institute, which interestingly is an organization that I co-founded, um, in 2017 with former Senator Jim DeMint and two of my Heritage Foundation colleagues at the time, uh, Ed Corrigan and Wesley Denton. So we were all at the Heritage Foundation together with Senator DeMint, left to start this organization. And it was it was really premised on a theory that we had, which is that the right has enough think tanks. Uh, there's enough people doing policy. I know my title is policy director, although it's kind of a fake title I gave myself. But <laughs> um, we, you know, there are enough people doing sort of white papers. But what the movement is missing is sort of a strategic focus, a focus on strategy, on tactics, on bringing the movement together with the, with members on the Hill, like the movement that exists on Capitol Hill, to get things across the finish line. Uh, in in a, in a meaningful way. And so I spend a lot of my time here actually teaching some of those tactics and strategies. Corey, you'll remember, you know, all of our, our time spent on Senate procedure, um, you know, especially in the activist offices where I worked. I spent 10 years on Capitol Hill, uh, the, the last part of my career as LD for Senator Rand Paul, and then as the policy director for the Senate Steering Committee under Pat Toomey and then Mike Lee. And a lot of my time there was spent, you know, staff would come up with great policy ideas, but then no one knew what to do with it. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. how do you get it on the floor? What what levers do you pull? Um, you know, so I teach a lot of that now. I teach five weeks uh, on Senate procedure, four weeks on House procedure to primarily Capitol Hill staff, but also the members themselves. Um, and I've, I've seen demand ramp up for this as the bodies themselves have become so dysfunctional because the way that we learned, to be honest, was just doing and watching. And when nothing happens anymore, you lose a lot of that institutional capability. So I'm trying to put some of that back. <laughs> but then I also have a, a little side hustle as a commentator and pundit uh, on and off Twitter. So that's just for fun. <laughs> that's pretty incredible. So you're saying that uh, you get you get members coming to your, your seminars, huh? senators and members of Congress? We do. Um, a lot of members, when they're first elected, um, you know, come to uh, to our shop and say, you know, kind of give me the the download, and we sort of do a high level overview. But then we work with them really one on one. We get a lot of calls from members who are like, you know, I have this idea. Give what are the three best options, you know, for pushing this on the Senate floor? And we just walk 
walk through that, right? Our goal isn't necessarily to tell them what to think or what the policy is, but just how to do it. Um, and, you know, of course, there's a, a synthesis, I think, too, between what the outside groups are doing and what the members are doing. And so we try to sort of bring those two sides of the equation together as well. Love it. That's so valuable. And I, I am sure that folks listening right now will uh, want to learn a little bit more about it. But let's let's back up a little bit first. Where'd you grow up? And what was it like growing up Rachel Bobard? <laughs> so I grew up in um, Western New York or upstate New York, um, close, like the very hot, like upstate part of upstate New York, like by Canada, right? Mm. Sometimes people get confused that upstate New York is like just outside New York City. <laughs> and that's not it. Um, yeah. So I grew up in a little town called Dansville, New York, uh, population 4,000. And uh, it was a pretty rural experience, um, still still relatively impoverished, uh, small town, small community. Um, my dad was a probation officer and my mom was a music teacher. Um, and that is kind of where I spent most of my formative years. And it was interesting because... Um, you know, again, small town, not a, lot, not a ton of opportunities. Sort of the illustrative anecdote I, I'll use to describe it is that where most uh, high school students take the PSAT and SAT, uh, we as a school took the ASVAB, which is the oh. yeah, <laughs> the military entrance the military. exam, the vocational exam. Because yeah, yeah. yeah, there wasn't um, not a lot of uh, not a lot of the Danceville senior high school graduates went on to college, so. I think there was just the recognition of that. But um, I did. I, I went, I ended up going to Grove City College, which is a conservative Christian private school outside of Pittsburgh. And that is what I credit for putting me on the path that I'm on now was the sort of mentorship and instruction I got, particularly from one professor, a guy named Dr. Paul Kengor, who still teaches there, heads up the Institute of Faith and Freedom at Grove City College, he was the one that was like, you know what, you might like politics. Have you ever thought about politics? And I was mm. like, no, <laughs> I had no plan. So he put me on this path to Twitter stardom. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great story. So you, you didn't have any interest in politics or social science or, I mean, what was your favorite t subjects in school up to that point? You know, I always liked sort of the liberal arts, right? I loved history, English, um, sort of battled the sciences <laughs> to some extent. Um, but no, I had, you know, it's interesting. Nothing was really, you know, the place where I grew up, there wasn't a lot of modeling, right? There wasn't a lot of people who got up and did stuff. That's sort of like you knew people did, but you didn't really know how. Mm. Um, you know, and I, my parents, I'm the oldest of four children. Um, you know, my parents had other kids to deal with. <laughs> and I think they, you know, if you have kids, you know, this sort of the oldest sort of is the competent one sometimes and just handles themselves. And so I think they were like, oh, you found a college. That's great. See you later. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So no, I, I had some like vague notion of law enforcement or, or, um, a legal career potentially. My dad, like I said, was in federal law enforcement as a probation officer. And so I sort of interfaced with that part of the world a little bit. And he had taken me to court a few times with him and that seemed exciting. But, you know, beyond that, no, I like had no concept of, of really politics or government or the wider world. And I really do credit Grove City with just sort of turning on that part of my brain um, in a way that was really formative. Wow. Cool. So um, your parents, what did they did you know which party, political party they were following or voting for or have any sense of that? 
Um, our house was pretty apolitical. You know, I think when you're sort of lower middle income um, with four kids, you're sort of just <laughs> dealing with the chaos. I also have a Down syndrome brother, um, and he he was the focus of a lot of, of my family's attention as well. But my grandfather, um, who was a Presbyterian minister, was was very actively Republican. Like we would spend summers with with him and my grandmother in Pennsylvania, and we would listen to Rush Limbaugh together hmm. <laughs> as children <laughs> uh, as we ate lunch. So that was like the extent of my sort of political awareness of, of where people were. Got it. So you're at Grove City College and you have this professor and this uh, opening up of your mind of this, of, of politics. And so where did you take it from there? So I, you know, kind of, I had a history and political science major. The second one I added after I met Dr. Kengor, I was his research assistant. So I worked my way through college, basically doing research for his books. The The man is a machine. He just pumps out like so many books. Um, and so that was my my job in college was doing a lot of his research um, on political topics. Uh, he wrote a book on Hillary Clinton that I helped him with, and that was my first real deep dive into sort of modern American politics. Mm. Um, and, and something else I think that Grove City did or does really well is that, you know, it's um, spectrum courses. You know, you take something on Western civilization, so you're really diving into sort of the founding texts of the Western culture, um, classical political thought, you're really diving into, you know, Aristotle and the early thinkers of community and politics. And so my early formation was pretty, pretty based. <laughs> it was pretty grounded in, again, a lot of these classical texts. And, you know, in my conversations with Kangor and others about, you know, modern politics, I, I really um, began to see, and I think really to develop my own formative philosophy around conservative thought, you know, how I think it should be applied in, in the modern age. And, and it was Kengor who, um, I think it was the summer between my sophomore and junior year was like, when he asked me that question, would you ever think about a career in politics? And I was like, LOL, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> um, and he, he was like, you should apply for an internship at the Heritage Foundation, which is what I did. Hmm. And once I spent, I'd never been to Washington DC before. And once I got here, um, I was sort of captured by, you know, the sort of, the fact that everything you know, at the time, it seemed like everything happened here. Um, this is, you know, where really consequential decisions were made. It's where people came. It's where everything happened. And that was very attractive to me. And I think also if you are a just sort of generally curious person, if you're a person who thrives on learning new things all the time, um, which sort of that's how my brain works a little bit, politics can be really exciting because it's never the same. And there's so many personalities and you know, all of it's, you know, you never hear politics described this way anymore, but I still think to this day that it's very fun. So I thought it was fun <laughs> then. I, I still think it's fun now. I love that you say that because I feel the same way. And that the complexity is what just makes it so fun too, huh? How, how did you decide that you were conservative then? Or how, how did you come to the conclusion that, you know what, I, I probably am going to vote for, and who, who who was your first vote? Would that, would that have been in the Clinton years or what? Gosh, my first vote was I don't even remember it isn't that bad <laughs> like it, isn't this supposed to be like the seminal moment of of your life uh I turned 18 in gosh 2002 so I don't even know so 2004 the Bush Kerry race yeah so that was probably it was probably for George W Bush and you know what's interesting about that though is that the Bush years were probably 
the most influential of my political life in terms of shaping my political views um, because I have – so I consider myself, if, you know, on the spectrum of conservatism, you know, I'm sort of a classical Burkean, right? Like mm -hmm. I value I, tradition, um, sort of the slow evolution of policy, this idea that, you know, rapid and, and, and sort of slashing change is, is, you know, bad for the culture, bad for the government, bad for humanity, but also this idea that humans themselves are, are, are corrupt. And I don't know necessarily that that's a Burkean idea as much as it is a Christian idea, you know, but this idea that men are fallible and that you cannot create a utopia on earth via the government, right? That was a very base, you know, formed my sort of baseline understanding when I came to Washington. But, you know, the living through and, and actually working on Capitol Hill through um, a lot of the fallout of the Iraq war and also um, the bank bailouts, those were two things that I worked on up close, so up close, actually, my first boss was a senior member of the House Financial Services Committee. And I staffed that committee for him through TARP and through all of that, being like 24 years old, mm -hmm. uh, which is horrifying, but also the reality of Capitol Hill. Um, and and it really sort of, I think, put a, a I don't want to say, maybe the best way to term it is like a populist bent into my conservatism in the sense that as I was sitting there, you know, on the staff bench behind the committee dais watching these members vote to bail out the banks you know to to hold no one accountable for mm -hmm. wrecking the economy at the same time that was happening my grandparents were losing everything mm. um, and i just yeah. to me there was some fundamental disconnect and a fundamental unfairness that wasn't conservative it wasn't necessarily liberal. It was this, I would come, you know, come to define this later as sort of the elite establishment, right? Working the uniparty working together in Washington to preserve this like elite status quo, I think is how I describe it now. Mm. But to my 24 year old brain, not, that didn't make sense. And then to add to that, you know, I've, I never had any real opinions about war until, you know, coming from the town that I did, so many of my classmates went to war. Uh, my own family went to war. Um, many of them didn't come home. And the, some of the ones who did, you know, I have a cousin who still struggles with the fallout from a traumatic brain injury where he had to have half his skull removed. And, mm -hmm. and I think when you see that up close, it makes you say, for what? You know, for what? what mm -hmm. did, you know, why, did, why did this happen? I think that, had, that really changed a lot of my views on, um, on war and foreign policy and really drove a lot of the work that I did for, for Senator Rand Paul. So I think those two things in particular really shaped, you know, my bent of conservatism, which is primarily conservative, but has a populist uh, sheen to it. Um, I think driven by those two things. That's a fascinating story because, you know, I can totally see that in you and what I know about you. So that, that really shines through and really interesting. So why, did these experiences push you to become, you know, working with Senator DeMint and, and Senator Rand Paul? I mean, it obviously pushed you in a direction of what some would call more conservative, or you you just described as a more, more populist conservative. Why do you think it drove you in that direction instead of, say, where Elizabeth Warren went or, where, uh, or you know, uh, Occupy Wall Street type? <laughs> the U-shaped theory of politics, right? Yeah. That you could have gone either way. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there is an undercurrent a little bit of similarity in the in 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 sort of the po the right populist movement and some of those things, which I think 
you know, on the left. And I think it comes down to this fundamental feature of our politics, which is that so much of what goes on in Washington is so distorted and detached from real people's lives and how people actually want to be represented. There, some people say that my philosophy about this is naive, although I happen to think it's like slightly romantic. But, you know, the idea of self-government to me is a very powerful one. And that is the idea that anyone can access this government, that it that in American self-government, our legislators don't sit above us. They sit equal to us. And so how people are responding across the country, what they care about, they deserve to see those things debated and hashed out on the House and Senate floor, you know, on the, on the most powerful deliberative stage in the world. And, you know, all the views aren't going to win, but everybody should, should, should see themselves reflected in the debate. And again, this goes back to what I, you know, touches on what I do now, which is you know, teach staff how to force that debate because so much of our of our congressional politics, I think, right now are are premised around avoiding it. You know, you see legislators that run from these issues, mm-hmm. um, that never want to take these votes, and I just think that's so fundamentally wrong. That is so interesting. I mean, because I've heard Corey talk about that too. But do you think did it really even change that much just in your time on the Hill, or was it already sort of going that way? Do you think when when you came to Washington? Um. Corey may have a different take on this. I think that it really has been the last 10 or 15 years it's really taken a plunge. Um, You know, you see the last big foreign policy vote, you know, that we had in in the open, right, was the the vote to go to war in Iraq. And, you know, that that's a very powerful thing. I was talking about this recently with regard to the $14 billion we just sent to Ukraine and how that passed. I don't know if anyone even noticed that it got jammed into the omnibus. Mm. with, you know, a ton of other priorities when I spent weeks arguing that it should be separate in the sense that these votes, these to, to, you know, engage in world affairs in a way that may in fact um, put America's blood and treasure at risk are the most important votes that members will ever take. Mm. And yet we've created the situation where we just jam it all together. The obfuscation is the point. There's so many priorities in one package that, you know, you can't hold anyone accountable for anything. And that's been a choice. Like this hasn't just evolved naturally. That, that's been a choice, I think, over the last 10 to 15 years by our congressional leadership because they've, they've structured the entire nature of deliberation around politics itself. And, and what I mean by that is everything is about protecting vulnerable members, right? Making sure mm. vulnerable members don't have to take tough votes. And it's like, again, this goes back to the idea of self-government. Voting is information, right? Voting is how you tell people where you stand and where you are. And if voters don't have that information, how can they make informed choices? And so that's something I'm, I'm particularly you know, passionate about. I don't think it's necessarily partisan, um, but I do spend a lot of time battling it sort of on the right and on the left because I think both parties are guilty of it. Mm-hmm. It's totally ironic that uh, you'd want want a job working as a U.S. senator or member of Congress to go out there and then try to avoid votes. <laughs> you, that, no, yeah. it's not. It's like that point is very poignant. Like if you think about the fact that these senators spend millions of dollars to get here, they're like away from their families. It's a miserable existence on the campaign trail. And then when they get here, the thing they hate doing most is voting. It's like makes no sense to me. I mean, it's a commentary on where we are that they don't view voting as the that's not what's desirable. What's desirable is to have the platform or whatever. Right. And Write a few um, votes, sit on some boards later. <laughs> right, exactly. So um, what you've described in terms of your 
populist coming of age. It, it, it sounds a lot like the folks who, who were, we'll call the most uh, supportive of, of Trump. And I, I got the sense that you had some ambivalence, but I wonder how do you think that he has met the moment? And do you think that it's, I mean, his rise is a reflection of some of the frustrations that um, I guess were key elements to your conservative uh, origin story? Yeah, you know, I I think tr- like Trump the person is less interesting to me than Trump the moment, and I think Trump is absolute the fact Trump's election was absolutely a reflection of where we are politically, you know, on the right, but I think more broadly on the, in the country. Um, you know, I've had this this theory for a while that, um, you know, people point to the Trump moment as like totally unpredictable and nobody saw this coming. And I just think the opposite. I think that in reality, if you remember the Tea Party, and that was, you know, when I was a young staffer, I sort of really came of age in the Tea Party movement um, in 2010. And that was really the first shot across the bow, um, that something wasn't, that, that there was a growing disconnect, I think, between on the right, especially between the established, you know, political parties and politicians and the base. Mm. Um, because if you remember, you know, there, there's been, there was an effort, I think, to co-opt the Tea Party movement and turn it into something that was like just about the deficit and and spending. And and it was partly about those things. But if you actually remember what, it, what issues really drove it, it was Obamacare, right? It was this federal mm. takeover mm. of, of health care, but more, more, I think, loosely this idea that the government would dictate your choices to you. It was the massive amnesty bill that Republicans and Democrats tried to pass in 2007. There was so much rage about that in the base. So it, it, were, it was these other issues that conveniently got shoved to the side um, that I think really drove that. And people just didn't – I think Washington didn't get the message. Washington Republicans just sort of carried on uh, and hand-waved at the concerns and, and, and moved you know, moved forward. And I think Donald Trump was you – know, if you consider 2010 the bullet they fired across the bow, like Trump was the nuclear missile that they said. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they were like, you haven't hurt us. Now you know, we're going to send the guy that we th- – that you know, we'll blow up the system for good or for ill, but we want it blown up. Right. Seems and, like. See, sorry, I was going to say it seems like a perfect analogy, and and uh, I here's my own mea culpa is I think I was slow to understand and s- slow to pick up on some of the stuff that um, I think you, you were much farther ahead, and I and I was still much more with the I don't know if you'd call it the establishment. I don't think there is an establishment anymore, but to the extent there used to be, sort of like um, just. Tr- trying to give moderate voters what we thought they wanted when it came to immigration, when it came, you know, to all these, all these different issues, foreign policy. And we actually were seeing this with Ukraine, how, uh, you, you just, you referred to it as the, the uniparty. I mean, <laughs> I look, I, I think, uh, you know, Putin is bad and we should do something, but I don't want to see boots on the ground, American boots right. on the ground in Ukraine, no. but, but you do see like the foreign policy establishment bipartisan very much in, it's like they've sat up like, oh, our moment is back. <laughs> you know, let's, right. Let's, yeah. let's go for it. But um, anyway, uh, so uh, for those of us who, who are a couple steps behind, um, you know, thanks for being patient with us. <laughs> <laughs> hey, no problem. <laughs> All right. So you, uh, you got your first internship at the Heritage Foundation and then, uh, and then I, 
you got a job in the house, right? And, and move, started moving around in your, uh, your Hill career. Is there anything, um, any thoughts that you think people would be interested in as far as like what it's like to be a staffer or what, what did you find that you didn't expect or, and, and what you called it fun, uh, a few minutes ago, what was fun about it? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I was reading earlier today, this time magazine article about how staff on the Hill want to unionize. Because like their lives are so terrible, um, and you know that's sort of the narrative that you hear about working on Capitol Hill, and you know it's certainly challenging, right? It's it's unlike any other workplace in America for a host of reasons. But you know I loved it. I I still consider it one of the greatest privileges, um, you know, of my life to be able to help, you know people across the country I worked for I worked for offices from Illinois to Texas to Kentucky to Utah to Pennsylvania I, you know I saw a lot of the, a lot of different parts of the country I met so many interesting people and at the end of the day like I always saw my job as as really shepherding their concerns forward right again I have this very romantic notion of self-government that um, I've never been able to shake 15 years in Washington and I still think like this which is hilarious because um, there <laughs> there's so many forces that want to beat it out of you but you know, I, I loved it, not in the least because, again, like if you're a curious person, there are so many things you can sink your teeth to, into on Capitol Hill, mm-hmm. um, you know, and it it really does go back to this notion of representation. And, and it's funny now on the outside of, of Capitol Hill and, and all the writing that I do, the people that continue to fascinate me most are the ones that the establishment hates and why. And I know, Corey, you said you don't think there is an establishment. I think that there there is still sort of an entrenched elite in Washington. And, and how I define this is the people that basically aren't really concerned with an ideology. They don't have a, a, a series of values they're necessarily defending. Their one value is power mm. um, and keeping it <laughs> uh, and, and maintain. A lot of times that means preservation of the status quo. And, and that's sort of what I would define as the establishment. So who the establishment is attacking and why is is has been a perpetual fascination for me, and particularly in the Senate, like I sought those people out to work for them, <laughs> uh, because one, I thought it would be fun, but <laughs> but two, you know, they usually just are are when there's a clash between you know the establishment on you know either side, the uniparty and and someone else, there there is you can learn a lot about Washington's priorities uh, from that exchange, and that's why I've written so much about. You know, the House Freedom Caucus, about Mike Lee, about Rand Paul, about Josh Hawley, you know, these people who have have pulled the ire of the establishment onto their heads. There's a lot that is revealed, I think, in those exchanges. And lately, it's been about Rick Scott versus somebody like Mitch McConnell, Rick Scott, the senator from Mm. Florida, a a non-traditional source, I think, of tension, um, but also a really interesting kind of back and forth. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. I see what you're saying. That makes a lot of sense. So... Where do you think that uh, conservatism goes f- from here? I mean, wh- how do you evaluate the current state and where do you think it goes from here? You know, I tell younger staff that I meet with, you know, who come and they're like, oh, we're just, I'm just, I hate Washington. I'm really frustrated. The movement is so behind and everything. And I just tell them, this is the most intellectually dynamic I've ever seen the conservative movement. <laughs> you know, 10 yeah, years I ago. Yeah, d- develop that for us because I, I've said that before to people and people are like, what are you talking about? You're, you're all about uh, January 6th and and uh, storming the Capitol and trying to break democracy. I don't see any thought, but anyway. Yeah, like, oh, yeah. yeah, whatever. Help but, us understand. <laughs> yeah, so, well, because when I first came to Washington, right, there was this 
you know, very rote under, you know, way of talking about conservatism and republicanism. And it was Bush Republicanism, right? Mm -hmm. There, there was no dissent. There was no debate. It was just sort of like you fall in line with what Bush is saying. And, and, you know, it's, it, that was a carryover from the last 30 years of how Republicans had done things. And that was it. Mm -hmm. Um, the, the, there were very, there were very stifled rooms, I guess, is a way to think about it. And now, right. You know, people like to point to, oh, the right, the right, you know, there's is in disarray and all these things. No, 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 no. I think that there for the first time in a long time, there's a lot of oxygen in some very stale rooms. And I think preconceived ways of doing things uh, are constantly being rethought, which, you know, I think is good. You know, I think that makes us smarter. It makes us sharper. Um, old political alliances, you know, loosely described as fusionism, I think are under scrutiny uh, and, and facing review. And again, I think that that's a good thing. I don't advocate throwing all of it out, but I do advocate, you know, constantly reassessing. Is this working? Are we prioritizing the right things? And that's fundamentally what I think is going on in conservatism right now. You know, I think there are elements of the right that that really do want to want to upend the system and throw it out. I don't align myself with that. What I do align myself with is this notion that what we've prioritized for the last 30 years and by that I mean you know, this sort of classical, classical consensus about, you know, prioritizing the economy, um, you know, pushing forward this sort of uh, liberal, and I mean, small L liberal, you know, classical liberal view of the world, um, and getting, you know, shrinking the government to be able to drown it in the bathtub, you know, that sort of governed our, our lives mm -hmm. for the last 30 years. Those priorities are still important, but they no longer meet the moment exclusively. And so what I think is actually going on in conservatism is simply a shuffling of priorities. It's a reprioritization. And by that, I mean, you know, we are facing a world now where all of the institutions uh, are weaponized against us. You know, the, the right has effectively lost the culture. We've mm. lost the institutions that make it up. We've certainly lost the government. And to effectively combat that, to ensure not only our political survival, but I think the survival of of everyone in America who cares about a traditional way of life, about patriotic values, you know, the things that they don't necessarily define philosophically, they define them as a way of life. To preserve any of that, I think, requ requires our politicians to re-examine their approach and say, you know, okay, we can't necessarily ignore the government anymore. You know, we have to engage it as much as we seek you know, to not necessarily destroy it, but to shrink it back into a box. We have to do both these things at once. We can no longer ignore the culture, mm -hmm. right? And simply say, oh, alternative institutions will save us. Not now, not when mm -hmm. the, not when there's such a collusive effort, you know, between the government and, and major private organizations and what, and, you know, in the market in particular, where we've allowed so much concentration to our detriment that you can't even have an alternative. You know, these are things that the right needs to start thinking about, which the left has been thinking about for decades. And so that's what I mean. We just have to reprioritize what we're focused on. It doesn't mean you throw everything out. It just means you change your approach to actually meet the battle at hand. You're not fighting the same battle you were 30 years ago. I think that's a great way of looking at the priorities thing because I, I I do think things are reshuffling and but I wonder if you think would we go forward with that same libertarian traditionalist coalition or is this going to bring in is this reordering of priorities going to bring in maybe new groups that hadn't really looked at Republicans before as a as a viable option and now are saying these guys are more with me than the Democrats I mean do you, do you think that actual makeup of the party is going to change I do think a demographic makeup of the party is is underway, um, and and if you look at any of the the real granular sort of Gallup polling on this, 
I think it bears it bears this out. And but I've written about this before in the sense that, you know, the people that are coming are flocking to Republicans right now are not traditional Republican voters. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're not coming to us out of some like you know, philosophical adherence to Milton Friedman. Okay. Let's just, let's just put it that way. They're right. coming to us because the left has become unhinged. Liberalism is, you know, and, and I mean, progressivism, you know, liberalism has, is unsustainable and they want someone to make the beating stop. Right. <laughs> that's, that's like why they're coming to us. Yeah. But to be an effective, to like remain an effective political party, you have to actually address that. And right now, you know, you see these like, sort of hand-waving agendas from the, the Republican gr- congressional leadership, which is like, well, you know, we're going to focus on energy efficiency. And it's like, that is a good thing. I hope you do that. But that is also a baseline expectation, expectation for competent governance, right? It's mm-hmm. not really taking on things like the, you know, public health uh, tyranny, you know, that's happening in this country. It's not aggressively wrestling with corporate America that is turning, you know, shutting its services off to half the country. It's not really taking on those individual fights that I think a lot of these voters are coming to us because they want us to address. And so to your point about sort of the libertarian consensus, you know, that we've built on the right, you know, I I don't, I, I think as a political institutional matter here in DC, the libertarians have just become corporatists. Like, they and I say this as someone who really was partially raised in the libertarian movement, right? I've, I'm very sympathetic uh, to to libertarian concerns about concentrations of power, but where they've lost me is that I've been ecumenical in that approach. I don't like power in the government. I am terrified of incredibly unaccountable, powerful corporations as well, and mm. that's where the the sort of DC based libertarians are like, you know, well that's fascism, and it's like no, it's, you don't understand the meaning of the term that you're using. <laughs> Um, and so I think that they don't, I think they reflect, it, it's like they're a corporate movement at this point. And I think that they reflect the consent, the, the it has no constituency. I was just going to say, I think you have a lot of nodding heads right now. So yeah, could, could I say, um, what would, what would the new priority, let's say contract for America 2022, uh, Rachel's writing it, what, what would it include? So I think the first thing that the, the right has to be to commit itself to is like taming the bureaucracy, right? Like actually getting control of the bureaucracy that runs this country now. But I think in addition to that, it also means taking on woke corporate power because the two are so aligned. Um, I think those are two, you know, key priorities the Republicans have to take on. I think, you know, and not all of this can be solved at the at the federal level, but like taking on the public health tyranny that's gone on in this country, I think is is vital. Um, and a lot of that you can do at the federal level, but I think a lot of this is local too. And then finally, just a dr- just being fearless in the culture war, right? You have, you know, traditionally culture war has been sort of relegated to like the one pro-life vote a year <laughs> that Republican <laughs> right. leadership right. deems to give us. But the culture is under attack. I mean, we can't even, you have a Supreme Court justice or, or a Supreme Court nominee that's probably about to be confirmed as a justice who is so cowed that could you know she she that when asked how to define a woman in her senate confirmation he- hearings she was so scared that she couldn't answer the question because we know she knows right this yeah, woman is yeah, one of the smartest knows. lawyers in america but she's so scared of of her base that she was forced to act to say the stupidest thing i've ever heard which is well i'm not a biologist but that's where <laughs> that's yep. where we are in this country and that has to be have a, a, a aggressive pushback I think you're right. I think you're seeing that, that maybe that's one thing we learned from Trump 
I mean, his personality wasn't for everybody, but what it did show us is that you can actually fight and win sometimes instead of just, uh, like some people call conservatism, progressivism driving at the speed limit. Right. You know, I think, I think you're right that sometimes we actually have to, uh, have to mix it up and, and fight for something or else really there's no point. So I just think it's, it's a, it's a good point. Well, and, and, and what we're fighting for isn't complicated. It's literally gender, you know, like biological sex, like the ability to like not have men compete in women's sports. Like this is baseline. If we can't do this, then what are we, what are we even here for? Yeah. A kindergartner knows what a woman is. Right. So, so when we reference like the the Bush years, and you called it uh, Bush Republicanism, I mean, I think a part of that is during the primary season campaigns. You know, it's like big big promises about gay marriage, about uh, right to life, and then when you get in the into the general election, and certainly when you're governing, it's like yeah, yeah, shh, shh, yeah, but shh, shh don't listen. <laughs> okay, okay, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. But uh, fast forward to now, like you can't ignore some of these things because it just, it's just so in your face all the time. And there, it does seem like every other week there's a, there's a new, uh, some, some new social justice thing that's, uh, that, you know, if you're not for it, then, then you're a knuckle dragging hateful Neanderthal. And, uh, and I do think that that's catching. It's like you're, you're punched in the gut and you've lost your breath. (laughs) Like really? Wow. That too. So who do you who do you who would you recommend uh, for those of us who are searching through all this? Who who do you look to for for leadership? Whether that's thought leadership, um, it could be uh, you know a, a columnist. I don't know uh, political leadership, politicians. I mean, who who do you see as leaders in this uh, in this movement? You know, I think it's you know, or I think there's we're waiting for people to really wake up and get it, to be totally honest, I think. Like mm-hmm. so much of, of my thought uh, is shaped by just the people I talk to like around the country. I, you know, I, I speak around the country at this point. I, I constantly am meeting with people who express the stakes of this moment so much better than anyone in DC, um, which I think should tell you something. But, you know, I do think, um, and it goes back to this idea of that I was saying earlier about the fact that I'm fascinated by the people the establishment hates. That's always a good place to start um, in the sense that, you know, nobody like like different me- different senators and members of Congress are always pushing on different things that tell you and, and then the blowback they receive tells you a lot. So I've spent a lot of time debating in this last week people on the right who don't think Josh Hawley should have pushed the line of questioning to Ketanji Brown Jackson ar- around child porn sentencing. Like somehow that is a controversial mm-hmm. issue on the right. Um, and I think it, looking into that, right, it can tell you a lot about different priorities. So I think f- making sure you always are looking for the reason behind the blowups, I think is really important. But I think in terms of, of you know, writers and thinkers, you know, I am sort of loosely affiliated with the Edmund Burke Foundation that sort of runs the Conference on National Conservatism. Um, I spoke most recently at their conference in November. I think a lot of the people that come to those those conferences are worth following. I don't agree with all of them. Um, but I think that that is that debate is healthy, um, and and it kind of goes back to my con- my comment earlier that this is the most intellectually dynamic I've seen the conservative movement in my entire life, um, and I think people should be following those debates and the journals that house them. You know, um, so it's it, I just contributed a piece that's published today in Spectator World that has a mm. they're hosting a symposium on on you know where the state of conservatism. Um, so those those places are always a good 
place to start. I contributed to one that the American Conservative hosted um, a couple years ago. So, you know, this is these there's the ability to sort of seek these things out is is much exists at a much higher level than it used to. And I think just following these debates is really important wherever you come down on them. Mm -hmm. Good advice. All right. You've been so generous with your time. Last question. What's next for Rachel Bovard? <laughs> uh, I don't even know what socks I'm wearing tomorrow. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing uh, in the next day. You know, it's my career has always evolved in ways I never expected. I never expected to be where I am. So I'm always sort of just preparing to be unprepared um, uh, for the next opportunity, but to sort of, of take it, take to, you know, be able to take it as it comes. Um, you know, I'm finally starting my own family. So I think that will be a, a key priority for me, but I really care deeply about these topics. You know, I, I care about conservatism. I want the Republican party as a political movement to, you know, represent the concerns of so many people around the country and do so effectively. So I'll be spending my life in that, trying to build up uh, that for, for the foreseeable future. But that's as much as I know right now anyway. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Thanks so much. This has been a great conversation. Super insightful. And uh, you're a superstar. So we admire you. And good luck uh, on the next stages with your family, with uh, leading the conservative movement. And we'll be cheering you on. Thank you so much. Yep. All right. Thanks much.